Hello, Father, and welcome everyone back to another edition of Father and Joe, um, podcast I hope you guys all are enjoying. Um, off of last week's conversation, one of the things that you had brought up that I actually had stuck with me over the last week or so was when you talked about what the pill actually does to a woman in the sense that it tells the body you're pregnant and now we're doing a miscarriage. Now we're going to say you're pregnant again three days later and they give you a miscarriage. That kind of naturally seems like your body's not designed to do that. And it makes sense that that leads to a lot of down the road problems, as you mentioned before, that that basically gives you cancer. That makes a ton of sense. And But the thought that came to me, and this might just be my math background, you said it was only 93% effective. And you also said that the natural way is that you can only get pregnant a few days a month. So you can correct me if I'm ass wrong, but if you can only get pregnant three days a month, three days out of 30, that means essentially your body's already 90% not going to get pregnant. And now by taking this pill, you're 93%. So you're gaining a net 3% for giving your body miscarriages and a drastically more likelihood of cancer. When you look at it like that, that doesn't seem to really be worth the cost benefit of it. Um, unless I'm missing something, but that was just something that had been gearing through my head uh, since we had that conversation last week, and I wanted to see if I was grasping the core concept right. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I've seen that kind of mathematical analysis, so it makes me wonder if, if we're actually comparing apples and apples. Um, but, uh, but certainly your, your insight that, and, and three days is uh, on the low end, I mean, the reality is because the uh, sperm survives in the body for up to 48 hours, that that can actually stretch. So depending on, on uh, you know, there are some, some outer fringes that it could be even five, six, seven days that, uh, uh, that uh, people could have sex and still conceive in the context of a month. The woman is only fertile, for example, three, four, or five days. Um, but then because of the uh, also the ability of the sperm to survive in the body that can last a little longer so it's probably not a perfect mathematical analysis that you uh, that you carried out and when it's uh, 93 percent effective um, I guess I'm not sure exactly even what that uh, if that's uh, for every experience of sexual intercourse and so it's uh, or Anyway, I think that's the, the case. I mean, the reality is there are, even with women on the pill, a lot of unplanned pregnancies, mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons that the abortion industry is uh, carrying out 1.2 million abortions a year in the United States because there are a lot of babies that were already not wanted uh, that are being conceived, and thus the backup plan to the birth control pill is, is abortion. And that's why also a lot of times you'll hear people say, you know, well, if you provided, uh, in fact, I had this debate, one of the more coherent debates on abortion that I had with somebody who is very involved in, in the pro-choice movement and was the most rational. I mean, just it was actually a debate in front of a class, a biology class or bioethics class or something. And, uh, and she was the head of like the Students for Choice or now on campus or something like that. Anyway, she, we continued to talk uh, offline, you know, outside of the debate, mm -hmm. just to 
uh, out of respect for each other and to understand the other's position a little better. And she said very, very sincerely, you know, I don't understand why the Catholic Church is so opposed to abortion and also opposed to contraception. It seems like if you had more, uh, you know, if there were more use of contraception, then you would have less abortions. But it actually goes the opposite way, and Pope Paul VI already anticipated that in his encyclical, Humanae Vitae, when you have the idea that contraception is actually 100%, it, it increases the amount of sexual activity. There's a lot of sexual activity, and it's the kind of sexual activity that you're often having on contraception is not the kind that's sort of ultimately satisfying. It's lost its, its ultimate meaning. Mm -hmm. It's outside of marriage. It's not trying to conceive children. It's, and so it's really a kind of appetite that that leads to a lot more sexual activity. So you have uh, an increased number of conceptions just because there's far more sexual activity. And then it's not 100% effective. And because you didn't want a baby to begin with, in a, in a certain sense, you killed the baby before you ever even had any sexual activity. So mm -hmm. uh, it leads to a great increase in abortion, which is what Pope Paul VI anticipated, and in fact has, has certainly been the case. Um, it's, it's also interesting... I'm really getting us a little bit off track, but I think you'll appreciate the just to see the logical connection because again, people will make that that claim, and it and at the surface it seems like a reasonable claim. Well, if you don't want conception, then you use contraception, but it, it falls short. And and the whole mentality behind contracepted sexual activity is the sort of watershed that leads to the embrace of abortion and and also justifies different aspects of uh, of same-sex uh, sexual activity. And, and you can see that in Supreme Court decisions. The, the watershed decision was actually 19, uh, 1968 with Griswold versus Connecticut, where the Supreme Court justices established the right to contraception. They, they prevented, they struck down any laws unconstitutional which would prevent the use of contraception. And that established the right to privacy, uh, that basically what a married couple does in their bedroom, uh, the, the law is not going to get involved with, although that's not really true. I mean, if a woman were claiming that she were raped in her bedroom, mm -hmm. then the law would get involved. But anyway, the, the right to privacy uh, sort of establishes some, some uh, liberty in the realm of sexual activity that um, then was foundational for the Roe v. Wade decision. And then uh, in the uh, Obergefell versus Hodges decision to establish the right to gay marriage in our country, four major reasons were given. Three of them included, one of them was entirely based on Griswold versus Connecticut. Basically, when the Supreme Court said definitively, sexual activity is not about children, then sexual activity became open to just about anything. And so... Likewise, marriage is not about children, and so marriage then has this, it's, it's lost part of its meaning in our Christian understanding of marriage, and so the redefinition of marriage became possible, again, through the uh, embrace of, of contraception. So anyway, the, there are a lot of things that sort of tumble when you, when you pull out the, the meaning of sexual activity, and you say that it doesn't. It doesn't have to do with children at all. Mm -hmm. When you remove that meaning entirely, 
then a lot of different things become possible and it leads to a lot of other uh, unintended consequences. Uh, that string of logic make, makes a ton of sense and one of the things that, that pop up in my head is that in general the, uh, the faith's been around creating their thought processes and, and systems and, and why we do this or, or that for a very long time, thousands of years. Um, I mean, the church began, what, in the first century. So they've had a lot of time to think about this. Well, politicians tend to change their mind on things quite rapidly and sometimes without a whole lot of thought. So I think that that's one of the, the just another side challenges that, you know, just because Congress says you can do it or, or the, the Senate says you can do it or the, or the courts say it, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's the right and, and, and the right thing to do which led me to a couple of thoughts that I had. We'll start with the one that's blending into the Congress world is that over the weekend, actually on Friday, um, was the March for Life down in DC. And I had a chance to, to go to that again for a couple of years here in a row. And the thought that I had with it was and this is going to lead in, into the rest of the conversation that I've had in my head here. Is you see a whole lot of people there, a lot of different groups, and a lot of different faiths. Ultimately, this podcast here is to guide people to come back closer to God. But we really never defined what is the best way to do that, if there is even a best way to do that. And the question I have for you is going to drive around that with what I saw down at the um, at the mark. So, I mean, obviously this is anecdotal because it's starting from me walking around with general observations and just seeing things. But you see a ton of people walking around with statues of Mary and wearing all kinds of crosses. See a number of stars of David's walking around. You don't. I didn't see any crescents whatsoever. And you know, I get that that that's it's a different faith. But part of this is. How do we get closer to God whenever there are distinct factions, some within Christianity, some outside of it, that are blatantly saying this is how your relationship should be, and they are different? So I guess my first question is, how do you know that you're doing the right thing? Because fundamentally, if anyone is doing the right thing, because fundamentally, each of the three major religions, Judaism, Catholicism, and Muslims, they all have three different paths you should go. So how do you know what is the right thing to do and then therefore how to interact when you get conflicting ideologies kind of attacking you? Um, so I guess that, that was a very broad, packed question there that was something that, that just really was weighing on me on my drive back from D.C. over the weekend. Yeah, well, that's a that's a good question. Your your observation about the uh, lack of visible presence of Muslims at the March for Life is uh, is interesting. Muslims are actually very pro-life, in uh, in terms of being anti-abortion, and in being in terms of uh, being being pro-children. And it's one of the interesting things in some of our European countries that have become so uh, sort of post-Christian and. Uh, married couples are not having babies. Muslims are having lots of babies, and so the population switch is uh, starting to take place. 
countries like France or um, Germany, perhaps to a different extent. Um, so, anyway, but that uh, that aside, your your question of you know, how do you know you're doing the right thing? And um, yeah, well, there's uh, one one thing that I think is really important to say explicitly is that we are talking about faith and. Christianity, Catholicism, has never swerved from that claim. We, we ask in baptism, what do you ask for this child about to be baptized, or what do you ask from baptism from, for, from the church? Faith. We ask for the gift of faith. Faith is, is our capacity to know God as he has revealed himself to us in Christ. And, uh, and we hold that it's a gift, and, and also the word faith has to do with trust. So faith is not mathematical proof. And Pope Benedict made a very beautiful statement about this. It's uh, sort of spoke to one of these questions that I, uh, I've carried around with me for a long time. And, and that's that question about faith and sort of your question, Joe, about how do you know you're doing the right thing? Well, he said, if you could express all of truth as a mathematical proof, then it would force itself on you there wouldn't be room for disbelief. And then you would not have a truth which is also love, because love always requires freedom. Mathematical proofs take away our freedom. You know, we can be obstinate and choose to disbelieve something, but it's ridiculous. I mean, you can believe that, you know, cows fly or that airplanes don't, but that's irrational. But mathematical proofs, uh, take away our freedom to to believe. So there is some part of the truth which is like that, that is a mathematical proof, and that's the, the part that we normally discover through science. It's an excellent tool, and it discovers a, a, a portion of the truth which is uh, accessible to whatever our scientific laws and uh, material realities and things that can be measured and perceived by the senses and all of those kinds of things. But there's another part of the truth which cannot be proven in the same way. And that requires trust, and it requires a free ascent. And that free ascent is necessary for love, because ultimately God doesn't just want our submission and our adherence. He wants our love, but then he has to leave us freedom. And if he were imposing the truth of even who he is on us, then he would be taking away our freedom, and thus he would be taking away our love. So I think it's important to say up front, when we talk about faith, we really mean faith. So uh, why, why do I believe that the fullness of truth is expressed through the Catholic Church? Because I believe that, and I recognize that that's an act of belief, and that's not something that I'm ever going to be able to prove to anyone. So the kinds of things that we do demand of theology is that it's internally consistent, that we don't have internal contradictions, uh, and that it's also consistent with science, for example, that it's consistent with that part of the truth which is provable, which is expressible. And, and that's the best we can do. You can't sort of prove from basic principles that there is a God who is three persons in one God, that he became uh, present, that the second person of the Blessed Trinity became man, and uh, we can't you, you can't take a, a DNA sample of Jesus 
and say, oh, look, it, there's, you know, part of his DNA is divine, and therefore, dot, 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 there must be, this must be the, the fullness of truth. So mm-hmm. we will never be able to do that. And, and I think it's important to ex- express that up front. So then uh, what are the kinds of things that we, that we look for, that we uh, want to see? Well, uh, I think we want to see some human flourishing, that, that our Christian faith is leading us to a, a fuller expression of our humanity, that it enables us to live more fully. Um, I think we're looking for communal realities, that if Christianity is what it says it is, then it should be able to form a great society where there's a great unity. And I think you can look, if you take an honest look at the history of, of Christianity, you find that in incredible ways. Christianity has sewn together uh, a human community which is beyond what, what anybody else, uh, any other religion, any other organization was ever able to do. Uh, you can look at the persistence. So these are not proofs, but they're, they're indications, they're pointers that, well, there's, you know, we're on to something here. Do we live it out perfectly? Well, no, that's pretty clear, too. We can see a lot of indications where Christianity uh, or Christians have, have fallen short, that there have been problems. Even those problems are a certain kind of proof, though, because it didn't destroy the whole thing. We see the Catholic Church persisting, even in the face of some of the worst popes at the highest level or the worst Christians and, and doing terrible things, making terrible mistakes. And yet, there is something that persists in the in the midst of all of that. Um, so, it's uh, it starts to become a very complex uh, reality. And and some of the thing you know, we will sometimes just recognize. Well, if you're living your life as a really faithful Jew, then you're waiting for the Messiah, and we're also waiting for the Messiah. So there's a way that we can wait together and hope together and work together. And so your your Jewish faith is uh, also going to prepare you to to receive the Messiah, and uh, our Christian faith is going to prepare us to receive the second coming of the Messiah. And and in Islam, I I hesitate to talk about Islam because it's such a hot topic, and I'm not that uh, that well formed in it, and so I don't want to be uh, over overextend myself. But but there certainly are very admirable things in Islam that there's a there's, you know, at least in some expressions of Islam, a, a love for neighbor, a love for family, uh, uh, an expression of worship that's uh, that's very dedicated and faithful and leads to self-sacrifice. And, and so I can imagine that people who are living as very faithful Muslims are also opening themselves to a fuller revelation, opening themselves to a gift of faith by which I can see them also coming to a point of being able to receive that revelation of Christ, to come and know him as, as we know him as Christians. Uh, but anyway, that's a, there's a, there are a lot of moving parts there to, uh, to wrap our minds around. And, and because of that dimension of faith, there's a, there's a certain built-in fuzziness to it that we, we don't like. You know, we like to be able to prove things to, uh, to people and kind of push them in the direction of, of having to acknowledge my uh, description, but but I think we have to accept that there is that that dimension of faith and trust because God wants our love ultimately. Well, well, that certainly makes sense, there, Father. As as especially the the point that I don't really think of it as far as yes, they, the Jews are preparing for the Messiah. That that's a big part of it, 
as well as we're preparing for, for the second coming. Um, like I said, it was just an anecdotal observation I made in the first place. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to tell or anything, but you know, the ones that are carrying around the big statues of the Blessed Mother, they kind of make it pretty obvious um, where their starting point is. So, um, so, so that being said, you know, we, we along with the discussion of, of how are we doing it right and how do we know we're doing it right, you know, you also hear this argument that says, you know, I don't need to do anything that's formal or structured, like going to church every day. You know, I, I, I just kind of, I, w- I want to be on my own platform. I got this. I'm, I'm going to be on my, on my island. And, you know, I, that's obviously part of the group that we're trying to reach out to here. And I guess my question is, what is the response to that element? Because... There is a wide group, you know, called arrogance or what have you, that feel that they can do everything by themselves, and that, that the structure of it gets in the way of whatever they're trying to figure out, the structure of that being the structure of the religion. Um, so when we look at that question, you know, what what kind of is the appropriate response when someone says, I don't need to go to church, I, I got this? Um... Well, I think uh you know there's there's so much that's going on. I've I've had a chance and and you shared a little earlier in our in our program Joe about your own conversion story and and uh there's so many different stories. And so uh I I think the fundamental thing is is actually developing a friendship with that person and and helping to draw them into uh, well to be able to see what it is that you appreciate about going to church. I certainly had no appreciation of going to church. Nobody ever told me what was helpful about it. All that I experienced it as was an hour on Sunday mornings when I couldn't play with my friends. <laughs> and, uh, you know, to actually share with someone why why it's important, I think that's a, that's on us as believers. What is it about Jesus that's, who, that's really changed your life? You know, what difference does it make to go to church, to be Catholic? And... Uh, I started countless homilies with that question to challenge the congregation. You know, what difference does it make to be Catholic? And I think it's a really important question for us to ask. And when we know that, then when we find somebody who says, oh, I I don't really need to go to church, well, then we can say, well, okay, but um, there's a a real blessing there. You know, when we can can go to church, one thing that it it provides for us is... uh, it helps us to overcome the prideful presumption of self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is very attractive in one way because when we get hurt by people, uh, then we don't want to depend on anybody anymore. And at some level, we know that just by depending on someone, there's always the potential we could get hurt, even if people have generally been pretty good to us. And so we have this uh, kind of latent desire, it's, re- it's really a diabolical desire to be able to do everything for ourselves. And we even imagine that that's kind of what God is. God is the one who can simply do everything for himself. What Christianity has revealed that God is, is an eternal communion of love, where it's everybody doing everything for everybody else, the Father doing for the Son, the Son doing for the Father, the Holy Spirit being the communion, the exchange of love that they share. So, uh, But the goal of our human existence is not to be able to do everything for ourselves. 
And we experience so clearly when we visit a nursing home, when we go to a hospital, when, when we're in touch with any, even the smallest percentage of humanity, uh, then we see that nobody is doing everything for themselves. I mean, we're, we're working right now on, you know, laptops and iPads. I didn't create the internet. I don't keep it going. I didn't create electricity. I don't keep it going. I mean, even at the most basic level, we depend on so many people for so many things. If we live in this realm of, of needing to do everything for ourselves, we're living this incredible lie that we're not, we're not doing anything. I mean, there's so many things. We, we couldn't function if we could only depend on ourselves. And what Christianity does is just takes it to another level and says, you know, we didn't create our own life, and we don't sustain ourselves in being. If God stopped thinking about me, I would cease to exist. I have no control over this. And the reality is that I have no control over a whole lot of things in life. And I can take two directions then. I can either make the decision that nobody has control, or I could recognize, well, there is somebody who has control. There is somebody who has a bigger picture. There is somebody who has a plan. And he loves me. And he wants to have a relationship with me. Why would I not want to have a relationship with him? <laughs> I can have a love relationship with the creator of the universe, the one who sustains everything in being, the one who has created my life and has created me for the good. Why would I not want that? Okay. And part of what he tells me is that a concrete way that I do that is by going to church, is by entering into a way of worshiping him. In fact, the need should arise in me that I think, how do I express, how can I thank the Lord for his goodness to me, as it says in, in Psalm uh, 116, how can I thank the Lord for his goodness to me, the cup of salvation I will raise, and call on the Lord's name. And so worship in this way can rise up as a, as an, a need, a desire from within, if we're, if we're in touch with reality, the reality that I didn't create the world, I don't keep it in being, I don't provide most of the good things that I experience and enjoy, and there's somebody who does who wants to have a relationship with me. So I, I guess that spawns, I guess, a, a comment and then a, a, a natural question for, from what you just said there. I guess the comment is thinking about this in a realistic sense is that, you know, ultimately from what you're describing is you want to have a deeper friendship with God. And, in ways that the people could put it today um, and if you don't see your friends or hang out with them eventually they fade away and if I'm understanding you correctly which please correct me if I'm wrong the way that you're saying that God wants us to you know hang out with him as friends and, and give thanks for being with him and him being a part of our lives and so forth is to go to church and participate in, in the mass therein is that um, I, I don't want to paraphrase you and simplify we talked about last class about how or not last podcast about how that can be a problem but um, is that safe to say is, is, is that that's the core concept yeah it's it's a, a concrete expression of our relationship with him and you know to say like oh well I, I can have a relationship with him and not go to church now, a lot of people that say that don't actually have a relationship with them. They just sort of use that as an excuse to not go to church. I can worship God in the forest. Well, like, how many days a year do you do that? Um, you know, do we really have a relationship with him? It's nice to say I can do that without going to church. And we need to do that outside of church. But 
church is an important part of that, especially when we recognize what the Eucharist is, which will have to be a whole discussion in itself. But yeah, to come back to your point, Joe, the, the fundamental thing is yeah, I need a concrete point of encounter with him. Friendship needs uh, a, a regular communication. We don't have uh, a friendship that grows distant is a friendship that, that falls apart. And and God won't force himself on us. He's, he, he nags us less than our other friends. Because again, he doesn't want to take away our freedom. He, he loves our freedom. And he loves so much for us to make the free choice to go and be with him. And and again, the Mass in, in a particular way is a, is an outstanding way, is the, the, the highest way of, of being with him. Because well, anyway, well, we have to go into the mass another time. But, yeah, uh, we're coming up with a bunch of topics that we're going to need to to do for our future episodes. And in fact, actually, the the question I had from before was going to obviously have to be its own topic, if not multiple. Which was during your your conversation, you said what an example of what not the purpose of life is, and I think that that would be a logical conversation for for a future podcast of what is the purpose of life as we go through here. So we would like to thank everyone for joining us in the podcast of Father and Joe and uh, hopefully this is this is something that's helping everyone out there to figure out their own path to become closer to God or how to get someone that's close to them um, in their prayers to come back to church and become closer and fill that relationship further. So I'd like to thank you, Father, for 